great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and the wallet. You hopefully have a few bills still in. We are working as hard as we can at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com to help you stretch every dollar you do have. And I hope that you're finding information that is helpful to you as you try to reduce your expenses day by day, week by week, and certainly your monthly bills. Now, I want to talk about something that has confused people no end, and that is what's going on with the oil markets, which is causing the stock markets around the world to have a really, really rough time. So here's the scoop, and we alluded to this on the show last week, is that it was possible that oil would go negative, that people would actually have to pay um, to have somebody take their oil. And that's an oversimplification. But the way commodities markets work is people buy and sell contracts on futures exchanges where they're guessing what the value of something is going to be uh, the next month, months down the road. And what's happening with oil right now is there's such an enormous oversupply that nobody wants it. People who own the contracts are essentially having to pay people to take them over. And so we have had a double whammy. First, we had the thing that Putin so successfully engineered that massively overproduced oil from Russia and then in turn from Saudi Arabia as demand for the products that come out of oil, gasoline and the others, fell off a cliff because of all the sheltering in place around the world. What Putin has been trying to engineer is to destroy the U.S. energy market. The U.S. energy market had become the world's largest and the situation for us different than Putin and Russia and the Saudis and some others is that it costs us more to produce each barrel of oil using principally hydraulic fracking than it costs to get at easily accessible reserves that the Russians and the Saudis and some others can get to. So hydraulic fracking costs more to do than most any other method of producing oil out of the ground or pumping it out of the ground. And so at normal prices for oil, our producers are marginally profitable to not really highly profitable, but enough they can make a living. What Putin saw was an opportunity to destroy some of the economic strength of the United States and to create more market share for Russia's oil. And so he's been able to do both by pumping way in excess the amount of oil needed in the world. Make no mistake, dictator Putin is dedicated to harming the United States. That's what he's always been about. That's who he was when he was with the KGB, when it was still the Soviet Union, and that's what he's still about. So where we sit today is 
the effects of what Putin unleashed has essentially worked. And now the world is so awash in oil that the problem is nobody knows if we're going to have any place to store the excess. As a result, you're going to see one oil exploration company after another and one oil producer after another in the United States go bust. And that's what he wanted to do, and that's happening. Now, historically, when that's happened, the oil industry in the United States has always been a boom and bust industry. Putin's victory will be short-lived because even as companies get cleared out as competitors, when oil's price recovers, as people around the world more or less eventually go back to work, the oil price will get to a point where players will get out there and start exploring and producing oil out of the ground again in the United States. So right now this is really hideous. But Texas, as I read one story in, forget if it was the Houston Chronicle or the Dallas Morning News, both follow the oil industry so much, particularly the Chronicle does, that Texans think of themselves as energy producers, not necessarily one particular type of energy. And already in the Permian Basin, the core of where hydraulic fracking has been so successful, companies are pivoting to producing energy from solar because the Permian Basin is one of the best places in the United States to efficiently produce solar and it's extremely profitable to do so there. So know that one of the things about American capitalism is when one door closes, American entrepreneurs are willing to take a risk on another. And I think you're going to see that the big pivot in Texas and West Texas is going to be to solar for now. But let's talk about what this means to you and me and our wallets. So the last trade for a uh, gallon of regular gasoline at wholesale is 54 cents. The effect of that is that around the country, what we pay for gasoline, once people start going back to work and get on the roads in more normal numbers, the savings to your wallet operates like a big tax cut. So this is a complicated thing in that a sector of the U.S. economy, energy production, is taking a body blow. You and I as consumers have been just eaten alive by coronavirus. But there is a dividend for us as consumers as we'll go to fill our vehicles as we go through months of trying to recover from coronavirus. We will pay much less for the fuel we put in our tanks. Now, there's lots and lots of things that the United States can do to strike back at the Russians, not militarily, but economically. And one that may be confusing, but you'll likely hear more over the next few weeks, is having a very high tax on oil imports.
since we have such a massive supply and the problem is a price side problem with no demand out there that if we create a price disadvantage for the Russians with the oil that would maybe flow into the United States, it provides a bit of protection to our producers. The problem is that creates a conflict between what works best for you and me as consumers, which is having a lower price per gallon of gas, and then the other side, what works best for the producers, which is to have some protection from the hideous actions of dictator Putin. Now, what we're doing here on the show now is post your questions for me at clark.com slash ask. And then producers Kim and Joel are alternating, asking the questions you post. And Kim, who's up first? All right, first up today, speaking of oil, this is from Jeff. He says, with gas prices being so low, I'm hearing about services like the gallon card, where you can supposedly purchase gas at these lower prices and lock in the price. When the prices eventually go back up, you have a set amount of gallons purchased at the lower rate. The website advertises that their cards are accepted at 90% of all gas stations. I heard this come up hypothetically recently, and I'm wondering if this sounds too good to be true. Well, executed properly, you could, as a consumer, if somebody was willing to hedge the cost of gasoline, there are ways that people do that. Airlines historically have done so. You could, in theory, buy into gallons of gas. So the problem with with anybody doing this right now is you're buying their promise that you pay them X number of dollars up front that equates to so many gallons of gas or diesel and it can be regular or it can be premium and you have to hope that they're able to back up their promise. So it is almost like buying a higher risk than normal gift card because there are a lot of moving parts behind the scenes that the gallon card or any competitors like them, there's so many things they have to execute properly for you to feel comfortable with the amount of money that you are putting into their prepaid cards. So I would say if you want to try this, don't put any money at risk that you would lose sleep over if ultimately the card was not able to honor the promise of you being able to use it for the gallons you have pre-purchased. Joel? Clark Kevin says, I'm one of the few people who panicked and moved lots of my money out of my diversified 401k into a money market fund after losing over $100,000. So I've since moved about 80% of that back into an age-based retirement plan. Uh, I did that on April 1st. So should I hold off on that extra 20% buying back a little at a time on market dips or just put it all back in now so I don't miss any sort of a big bounce? I hope to retire in two to three years. Well, actually, as I've said over the last several weeks, even though we've had this bounce back in the market, I think we are due for a pretty significant decline in values in stock markets here in the United States and overseas. I and mean, we've had a bad couple of days taking back 
some of the gains that we had over the last few weeks. But the reason that I think that the markets are likely headed lower for a while is that the ultimate value of stocks eventually trends with the earnings companies will have. And a lot of companies are going to report lower earnings. I don't know if you saw the news about Coca-Cola, that one of the things that isn't happening in coronavirus in the coronavirus era is people aren't buying soft drinks right now. And that's one of the categories that people aren't spending their money on. So there are a lot of companies that are going to report, oops, we're not making the kind of money we thought we would because our sales are not as high. So here I am telling you, I've changed nothing with my investments. And I'm telling you that I expect we're going to see a pretty painful time with the stock market for a while. So is, is something wrong with me? Do I need my head examined? No, it's all about what the target is, what the goal is. The goal is to eventually be able to use money you put aside in a 401k or a Roth IRA or an IRA for the long term. And with that being the goal, it's too hard to know when to put money in, when to pull it out and all that, because the biggest moves in the stock market historically have happened in a very small number of days. And if you wait around till it feels safe, you likely have missed many of those big upward movements that happen over a small number of days. If you're under age 50, ignore all the headlines, ignore all the declines, because remember, every pay period, you're putting money in, buying you more shares at lower prices than you would have before. So staying the course is the most important thing even as the numbers in your account may look really scary over the next many weeks or months. Today's Clark Rave, as we do each day with the Clark Rave, we focus on what people are doing to help each other in this tough time because of coronavirus. And it's long been said that professional sports leagues are teams owned by billionaires paying millionaires. Well, you know around every sports team, there's a huge number of workers who don't make a lot of money, who work in concessions, who work taking tickets, who work security at games, along with others that prepare the court, the field, whatever. Well, you know, sports leagues are all suspended. And what's really cool is what lots of team owners or players are doing. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks owner, a guy named Tony Ressler, is paying all his employees. And that's he said that's just what he's supposed to do. The owner of the Nets is paying money to employees through the end of May. A uh, guy who plays for the K Cleveland Cavaliers, Kevin Love, gave $100,000 to support employees. Mark Cuban said he's setting up a payment plan to pay his hourly workers. And team after team, there are people doing things either as owners or as players. Uh, here's another guy whose name I cannot pronounce. He's one of the 
real stars of the NBA. Uh, oh my goodness, Giannis Antetokounmpo, whatever, is giving a hundred thousand dollars to the staff. Uh, Chris Middleton is giving a hundred thousand, and then the Milwaukee Bucks are matching all the contributions of the players. So that's just a little piece of what's happening in the NBA. There's similar things going on in baseball and in professional hockey. And so we've got these really, really wealthy to phenomenally wealthy people that are not just saying, oh, who are you? They are stepping up to the plate to help the workers. I think that's great. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you have. Now, I want to talk about something that is uh, very much a political story in the United States, but I'm not really interested in that angle. It's how we reopen the country and what that means. So we're going to have a number of states that will be out front opening things back up and allowing certain professions to go back to work, certain industries, um, restaurants, bowling alleys, tattoo parlors, uh, hair salons, you name it, any of a number of industries that have been essentially in lockdown will be allowed to operate again. Well, the experience in other countries and particularly I look at Sweden which did not do any lockdown if you're not aware Sweden followed a path of no other country in Europe and said yeah we know this is out there but we're not going to shut down regular commercial or civic activity and so people have been in schools like normal people can do pretty much every activity except do large gatherings, like no sports events, cultural activities, things where you'd have a great deal of people together. Well, what's been fascinating is that so many activities that people have been allowed to do, they have chosen not to do. As an example, movie theaters have remained open with the requirement that people be spaced so far apart so that the physical distancing or social distancing, whatever you like to call it, so that people would not present a danger to each other. Well, the reality has been that people, uh, if you don't know what Sweden's like in this time of year, it's a pretty rough place to be outdoors. So people do indoor activities in much larger numbers than we might like going to theaters, and they're not going. And so even though people can, they're choosing not to. Now, there's a new report from Barron's Magazine that drew on data from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And it's what's known as high-contact occupations. What are the ones that people are most in danger of potentially transmitting coronavirus one person to another? And are the ones that, in turn, people, even if they're allowed to, might be reluctant or afraid to do, either as workers 
or as customers. Number one on the list with the highest, what's known as proximity index score, the closest you are continually in contact with other people, barbers, hairstylists, and cosmetologists. So even though my hair is the longest it's been since college, because I've been dying to get a haircut and I can't do it, um, and my wife said she'll cut my hair for me and I'm not like uh, so comfortable having her do that, eventually it'll maybe come to that, the idea of going and sitting in a chair and getting my hair cut is something that I'm just reluctant to do. And so there are a lot of fields like that where some of them are in health, obviously. In fact, many of these are in the health field. Number two closest contact is occupational therapists, physical therapists, and people who work in those kind of practices. Number three people who are home health care aides or personal care aides and then category four veterinarians nurses and midwives i don't know why veterinarians end up in the same category with nurses and midwives but they do and i've got this long list of of categories and one of them in particular is an industry that's going to have a hard time coming back to life and that is People who work on airplanes, flight attendants, and pilots are in one of the highest proximity index professions that there are. And there's a video running around today of a guy who was the only person on a Southwest Airlines flight. And so to make the flight fun, he was uh, doing TikTok videos with the flight attendants dancing and it's really quite humorous till you think about what it's like to fly a 737 that seats 143 people and have only a single passenger on it. So the point is, and I could go through the whole list of professions, they represent somewhere between 20 and 25% of all jobs in the United States. So as we reopen the country, state by state, city by city. The big issue isn't what government tells us we can and can't do. It's the decisions that we make individually that end up with a collective response that ultimately controls how quickly the economy will recover based on people's desire for their own safety versus their need for a paycheck to put food on the table and pay their regular bills. And I forgot, is it Kim or Joel next asking your questions that you post at Clark.com slash ask? It is me, Kim, and this is from Jim. He says, I've been putting money into my dependent care flexible spending account this year. Daycare centers are closed in my state. Can I access the money and take it out without penalty? You cannot access the money and take it out without penalty But what you may be able to do, depending on your employer, is discontinue any future contributions if you're still working. Um, Now, the coronavirus statutes allow employers to stop what normally cannot be stopped. Once you make an election each year for dependent care or health care under FSA, um, under, I'm sorry, under 
flexible spending accounts, it's set for the year. But because of coronavirus and you know things like childcare centers not being open and things like that, there was a piece put in one of the stimulus laws that allowed you to discontinue it if your employer permitted. There are employers that aren't permitting. As to the issue, if you've been laid off and you have money sitting there you haven't used, there is no provision that allows you access to those funds for other purposes. Joel? Clark Connie says, I got a call today that my landlord wants to raise my rent $200 a month, and he wants to make me sign a one-year lease as well. I've been on a month-to-month lease since the beginning, so I'm not sure what's up. I know the house changed owners recently, but why would they want to be a Grinch right now with everything going on? My husband isn't working, and I'm a frontline healthcare worker who could get sick at any moment. The last thing I need is to sign a lease or pay higher rent, so what should I do? Wow. What I would do is I would call the new landlord and tell the new landlord that the situation that you're in and that you cannot do either of the two things that the landlord has asked of you. And the landlord at that point would have to, on a month-to-month, depending on the laws in the state in which you rent, the landlord would have to give you a certain period of time for you to find a new place to live and move. Now, if you go to whatever search engine you use, Put in the phrase landlord-tenant law and then your state name, and you'll be able to see the rules on someone on a month-to-month lease on the notice required to either raise the rent or tell you you have to move out. So you're in a weakened position by being on a month-to-month when a property is sold. If you were in a lease, the new landlord has to honor the lease you're under with the old landlord. But in this case, it's governed by, uh, first, what the law says in your state on month-to-month and the laws of human decency by you reaching out, which is not a law, it's just, it's just life, reaching out to your new landlord and say, uh, hi, I'm your new tenant that you bought and uh, I can't do this. What do you want to do here? And maybe you negotiate an extended period before a move out. One other thing you should look at is you may have additional powers right now in the state in which you reside. There may be a state statute or a local requirement due to coronavirus where no evictions can take place till a certain date, and that would give you additional power in negotiating with this new landlord. Kim? Claire says, due to the temporary shutdown of so many realtors, do you think clothing will be going on sale? And if so, when? Uh, Clothing is in a deep depression of all industries. The uh, apparel industry has been perhaps hit harder than every other, not just in the United States, but around the world. So if you think about something that's a almost a completely optional purchase it's clothing and so retailers and manufacturers of clothing are in a world of hurt with massive oversupplies that they don't even know what to do with because they've lost a whole season so there are these absolute distress sales that are happening 
especially on women's clothing, with people getting emails of uh, one-day or one-hour flash sales, with true discounts ranging around 70% on women's clothing. So if there's one category where the deals are beyond anybody's comprehension, I would say that it is clothing is where you're going to see the true real bargains over the next few months. Joel? Clark Bryan says, first, thank you for all that you and your team are doing right now. My question is when trying to take a hardship withdrawal from my 401k. It allows me to take out more to cover my tax implications. Is this the only tax I'll have to pay? Or when I do my taxes next year, will I have other implications too? Uh, Great question. So if you are doing a hardship withdrawal, you are allowed to spread the tax you would owe over three years rather than one. And the 10% federal penalty that you would normally pay right off the top. So let's say you took 50000 from a 401k with a withdrawal, you would normally pay five grand right away for that, plus ordinary income tax on the whole thing. So you get eaten alive tax-wise. Now that tax burden is lessened in that the tax is spread over 36 months instead of a single year. And if you get your financial footing back at some time over these years, you can pay the money back into a retirement account and the tax is wiped out. So there's never been a circumstance or situation like this that I can recall with the absolute flexibility you have and more favorable tax treatment than normal. Having said all that, your situation is probably the kind that this should be done where you're out of all other ways to support your life. Just because you can withdraw money under more favorable conditions from an IRA or a 401k doesn't mean you should say, oh, that's a green light, I should do it. It is more a last resort rather than a first. Kim? William says our trip to Alaska was canceled and we were lucky enough to get a refund back. It went straight to our credit card. Now we have a negative balance on our credit card of over $10,000. I was going to transfer that to our bank checking account, but the credit card company wants to charge us a 4% fee for the transfer. What? What? He says that sounds greedy to him, and I'm thinking you agree. That is terrible. Now, if you have a very large balance with a credit card company, though, generally they will have guidelines when they just write you a check for that balance. So that's the tactic you want to take. So you want to say, how soon can I have a refund of this overage that's in my credit card account as a credit? And if you don't like the answer, you should tell them you're going to file a complaint at consumerfinance.gov. The credit card companies don't like, the banks don't like those complaints, and it shows up in stats about how many problems a particular bank is having and with the public. And so that would be your best vehicle, but paying the 4% fee is highway robbery. Actually, it's reverse bank robbery. When you have a question for me, go to clark.com slash ask and post it. And then producers Joel and Kim are asking your questions for you. And Joel's up. What you got? 
Clark Latroy wants to know, can you suggest a safe and trusted website I can purchase face masks for my wife, three-year-old twins, and myself? Well, I'm so glad you're asking that question because we've had it so much on Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com where people have been asking about it. So at ClarkDeals.com, we put together a guide to how to buy a mask and what the risks are with each of the suppliers and what you get for your money with each. So uh, we've done extensive research in this area. One of our writers, Sarah, has dug deep. And we do want you to know that with any of the sellers of masks, because this is such an unusual area to have become such a big concern with people, that there are going to be situations where you buy them and you're going to be unhappy with what comes or nothing will come and you will have spent your money. But we've tried as best we can to come up with a clear guide to how to purchase and what you'll be getting for your money. I think about the irony that uh, when coronavirus was just kicking off, I was in Dollar Tree about five weeks ago and I was able to buy disposable masks, 10 for a dollar, a dime each. And think about how the world has changed since I did that roughly five weeks ago. Kim? Jim says, six months ago, you suggested buying a Roku device and possibly connecting to Hulu TV Plus to get out of our cable expenses. Is this something you would still suggest? Yes, we found that certain of the services are the best value for your dollar and generally i really like what's available from sling what's available from hulu with the live and what's available from youtube tv there are many many others though if you want to see the choices we've got a thorough guide on clark.com to all the streaming services including the ones that are my favorite price free the podcast normally would end here, but because of the unusual circumstances we're in, we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that I'd like you to have access to, and this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant. I want to talk to you about something that has come out of nowhere to be a huge problem for people. And that is roughly about 100,000 vehicles a week reach the end of their auto lease. There are millions of vehicles on lease. And there are reports that are coming in to me, they're coming in all over the place, that the leasing arms of the auto manufacturers are not allowing people to return their vehicles at the end of the lease. So here's what's at stake. The auto manufacturers, to try to get more vehicles in the marketplace, push these leases. And they have an expectation built in about what those vehicles are going to be worth at the end of the typically three years. Well, now, because vehicle sales have dropped about 60 to 70%, the value of used vehicles and the market for them has evaporated. So the auto manufacturers don't want any of these vehicles back. 
So they are not cooperating with people at the end of their leases. And they're saying, oh, well, we, we can't take the vehicle back right now. So as a courtesy, we're extending your lease. And then you're paying additional months on a vehicle that you probably don't need right now because most vehicles are parked, right? And you're having to keep insurance on that vehicle because under the lease, you have to have full coverage very much specified by the finance arm of the automobile manufacturer. And so you're left holding the bag for their problem. If it's a vehicle you don't need, do not accept that term from them. That, okay, it's the burden's on you. You're going to have to pay us more months till we're willing to take the vehicle back. Uh-uh. If you reach the end of the lease, send them an email to the auto manufacturer finance arm and whatever official address is in your lease contract, you send them a letter. I mean, normally I'd tell you to go send it certified mail. Right now you don't want to do that because you'd have to go into post office, have contact with other people and all that. But send them a letter also telling them the lease is over and you're done with it. And where would they like you to take it? And in addition, you should tell them every day forward, you're going to charge them a daily storage fee of $20 or whatever. Just like you'd have if your vehicle was towed for being parked illegally and they're charging you a daily fee for storage, you should charge the auto manufacturer a daily fee. Do not accept an extension if that's not what you want. And you should not be paying for auto insurance beyond your lease. If they finally tell you, well, we don't have anybody to accept it, but go turn it in, take thorough video of the interior and exterior vehicle and take a lot of pictures so that you have proof that you turned it in in good condition. If it's not as clean as it should be, get it cleaned and set up just right before you do drop it off. And here's something else I wanted to talk about today. So as we move forward with states opening up more and more, and there's a lot of states that will follow the German model that will allow stores that have been shuttered and restaurants have been shuttered to reopen under new rules. And it's not going to be every store, every restaurant is even going to reopen. But one of the things that's important when you're out and about for both you in a store or restaurant, the people working in that store or restaurant, is to take, obviously, precautions we never have thought about, and that is, keeping the distance safe and wearing protective gear like a mask. I don't know how you eat in a restaurant with a mask on. But there's something else, too. And it's a feature that's available for anybody on an iPhone or an Android, thanks to Google. They have a thing on here that's called Popular Times, and you can pull it up for any day, but I'm really only interested in up to the minute. And the idea of it is you can see what patterns there are, how many people historically are in a particular store, restaurant, or a government office, or whatever, at a particular time. 
But wait, there's something much more useful. Do you know Google knows based on you pinging your location on your iPhone or Android exactly where you are at any moment? And because these smartphones are so everywhere, they can tell you with virtual nearly 100% precision how many people are in that store or restaurant right now. And so I'm looking at, of course, my favorite store, Costco Wholesale, and I'm looking that the location closest to me is not crowded at all right now, that traffic there is way down, much lower than normal. And this still isn't, though, the best time of day to go. There are certain hours that they're much less crowded than right now. And so I can see that pattern and know when the best time is for me to actually go. The other thing is you'll see patterns by day of the week with a lot of restaurants and retailers. We have a sense of which days are going to be the least crowded to be in them, grocery stores, that kind of thing. But now you can see, hey, you know, it'd be much better to go on Wednesday than it'd be to go today, that kind of thing, so that you and the people working wherever it is you're going are both in the position to be as safe as possible. This is the Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.